Well, good morning. I would be remiss in not saying thank you so much for a warm welcome and uh, this wonderful opportunity to share with you about some of the some of the best days and the best day there has ever yet been. It's my very great pleasure to be with you this morning. I notice I've not been in this building before. I've not been to this assembly before, but I notice some differences. First of all, I'm very jealous. You have a cello. We should definitely have a cello. Uh, I noticed some similarities as well. Um, so I ask an important question before we get too far into things. Have you turned off your cell phone? I heard it ringing in the first meeting. You know, we have, um, we have an elder back in Sudbury, and to save him embarrassment, I won't tell you his name, but let's just call him for the sake of time this morning, Jimmy Morton. <laughs> and one of Jimmy's pet peeves, and he has many, um, is cell phones ringing in the meeting. It's usually, if you'll forgive me, it's usually the guilty party is a young lady, usually. But this one particular Sunday morning, the guilty party was our friend Jimmy. Text message came in and bing, his phone went off right in the middle of meeting. Now he told me afterwards that he thought, he's a clever fellow, you see, he thought, hmm, there are two young ladies sitting behind me. And as long as I don't make a move for my phone, they'll be thought of as the guilty party. <laughs> so I'll wait till all the turned heads have turned the other way, and then I will turn off my ringer, and I will escape. But he waited a second too long. Bing! The phone goes again. Everybody's head is turned. He has to reach into his pocket, pull out his phone, and turn off his ringer. So you can't help but see the two text messages that came in. The first says from his son, who's sitting at the end of the row, Hey, Dad, did you remember to turn off your ringer? <laughs> the second, also from his son, I guess not. I put some, some lyrics up on screen. Maybe they strike you as a little odd. Can I tell you something? Um, many of you would know Arnold Spears. And Arnold Spears to our family was a great friend for many years. We loved Arnold and Joan, and they were part of our locale for many years and enjoyed a lot of fellowship with Arnold and Joan over the years. And I miss them terribly. And maybe you do too. There are some people who would come on a Sunday and they might get up in a meeting and say something. And maybe you've had this experience. You think to yourself, yeah, I've read that before. I've understood that. Maybe that's even something I would have said, given the opportunity. There are other people, and Arnold was like this to me, and some others are. Arnold would get up, and what he would say was true. But I never would have thought of it. And when he said it, it opened up my way of thinking to any number of different worthwhile avenues. I like that. I like to look at the truth from some different angles. This particular songwriter, Andrew Peterson, is I mentioned before. He's been pretty influential in our family, to speak frankly. We raised our son listening to Andrew Peterson lyrics. And he said this, which comes at the truth from a very different angle. 
my God, my God, why have you accepted me? That's a rather strange way to speak of something that obviously takes you back to the words of Scripture, but it's a very good question. And it leads you maybe to thinking, as it leads me to thinking, as many of the things he's written lead me to thinking. And so that's a long rambling way of saying, I want to work this morning through three things with you. And you say, this is Easter Sunday, Anderson. Did you not notice the calendar? I want to come at the truth from a few different angles and maybe to look at some things in a way you haven't thought of them before. And I hope that'll be a help to you. May the Lord lead us. Let's open in prayer. Father, we come to this most amazing of days. We've thought yesterday and we'll think today of the very Son of God, your Son, the fullness of your heart, the object of your love, the one who was completely holy. And we think of him going to a cross and giving up his life, not because it was mandated that he should pay for any sin of his own, for he had none, nor was it mandated that he should save us, but he chose to do it, and you chose to send him, and we're awestruck by a love that would go even to death. And we think this morning, too, that that love has gone far beyond death, that you have declared your love for your son and your acceptance of his finished sacrifice by raising him from the dead. And we come this morning to commemorate and rejoice in an empty tomb. And so as we walk this path, as we work our way through these ideas, Father, may your son be honored and glorified. That's our purpose this morning. Bless us, Father, as we seek to speak of those things that are unspeakably deep and unspeakably rich. Bless each one who's with us here in person and attending perhaps remotely. Feed us, Father, because we're your sheep and we need to be fed by your hand. Encourage us this morning from your word in our Savior's great name. Amen. All right. So we want to think about a pearl, a bridge, and a letter. We want to think about it. We want to maybe advance, but we're not advancing. That's okay. Oh, there we go. I blame you totally. All right. Can we talk about pearls for a minute? You know, Scripture talks about pearls. You've got a reference there on the screen. And pearls, to me, are a very interesting subject. You know how they're made, right? There's an oyster minding its own business, living its life. And into that oyster, swept in, if you'll pardon the intended double meaning, swept in by current events, comes a little piece of grit. And it's irritating, and it's unpleasant, and it's unwanted, frankly. It's not something the oyster has anticipated or perhaps even planned for. But there it is nonetheless. But what do you do? What does an oyster do? Bit by bit, day by day, the oyster begins to secrete a substance called nacre, N-A-C-R-E, I believe is how it's spelled. And it's interesting, if you look it up, I believe that's still true to this day. Nacre 
is the most resilient naturally occurring substance that we have ever come across. We don't know anything in nature that is as resilient as nature. Not on day one, of course. Day one, it's a little flimsy, insubstantial layer of something. You'd hardly even notice it. But day two, there's a little more, and a little more, and a little more. And ultimately, there is this accrual of an unbelievably beautiful and unbelievably resilient substance. And when you and I come across an oyster and we open it up, we may be fortunate enough to find a beautiful pearl. What's interesting is sometimes you'll open up an oyster and the nacre has built up around a layer of grit, but it hasn't formed a pearl that we crave and we think is beautiful. It's formed some ugly misshapen blob. It's incredibly resilient, but we don't treasure it. We throw it away. Maybe you can think of the parallel. Maybe you've even, dare I say it, experienced the parallel. Happily going about your business, going about your day, and current events bring something in that was unanticipated, unwanted, unplanned for. I think about further from this location, I think about three families in Nashville, young children who will not come home again. Three more families, mom or dad, won't come home again. And that was not planned for. And what do you do with that? That bit of ugliness and pain that has come into an otherwise perhaps well-ordered, even idyllic life. And now it's not the joy it was. And every day you can build up, and maybe you've seen this, you can build up a layer and over many days, it becomes kind of a protective layer, a very resilient layer. Sometimes it's an ugly layer. It's a layer of bitterness built up day after day after day. And maybe you've met people like this that uh, I would tell you, uh, my father, I remember him coming home one day, he'd had a haircut, which increasingly as he got older, he needed less and less of, and that'll happen to me too. But he'd had a haircut and he came home and he said the kind of thing he often said to us kids at the dinner table. He said, you know, I had a haircut this afternoon and I, I think the fellow who cut my hair was a, was a believer. I said, well, why would you think he was a believer, Dad? It was in his face. Then he'd go back for another haircut and he'd have a conversation and, oh, you know what? That fellow would be a believer. He was often right. And you can see the opposite. You can see people who as children were filled with joy don't you love the joy of young children, the innocence, the beauty that is? And oh, how this world hates innocence. And oh, how this world destroys innocence so quickly. More quickly in our generation, it seems, than ever before. And that innocence is stripped away and the hardness and the challenge of life and the disappointments of this world constantly offering things it does not deliver and occasionally delivering things that were never planned for and never wanted, and the innocence is gone, and it's replaced with an incredibly resilient hardness, and you can see it in people's faces, and it's heartbreaking. People who should be beautiful and joyful, 
who have been destroyed or are on their way to being destroyed by this world. Incredibly resilient, resentment and bitterness built up day after day after day. Isn't it lovely to see the opposite? In Christians, I think of more recent events quite nearby, and you've been touched by them too. You think about a son and a father and a husband who didn't come home. And I see the, the words that his wife, his widow now, wrote. And the words that his father wrote. I think, how do you do that? How do you take something impossibly ugly and unpleasant and unwanted and painful, and how do you wrap that in a little, maybe day one, insubstantial thin layer of beauty? Day after day, trusting in the Lord believing that he's good, believing that he's faithful, day after day, dare I say it, being thankful for what his hand allows, and building up something that is unbelievably beautiful, and dare I say it, unbelievably precious to God, the pearl of great price. I don't have to know you this morning. I know some of you. I know some of your stories. But I bet if we sat down for 30 seconds and you were honest, you could tell me about some grit at the center of your life. And if you're too young or too inexperienced to know what grit is, well, give it a minute and we'll have that conversation again because it's coming. This world is full of challenge and being a Christian doesn't preserve you from it. We certainly know that. What will you do with that thing that comes into your life, that becomes the center of your life, becomes your focus, what will you do? Will you give it back to God, or will you keep it for yourself and make it an object of bitterness and hardness? I wanted to think about a pearl for a few minutes this morning. I want to think as we move on about a bridge. I tell you about Northern Ontario, I know a little bit. I've been back there since 93. I remember when I left Toronto in 93, all my friends said, where are you going? I said, Sudbury. They said, are you nuts? <laughs> and most days I think I probably am, uh, especially as the winters get longer. It seems to me every year they get longer. I used to look at people, I'd go up there, I'd meet people. They say, oh yeah, we in October we go to Florida and we come back in April. And I would think, why do you even live in the North? <laughs> Just man up, what are you doing? And now I think, how do I get my hands on a trailer? <laughs> I want to go. There's a little community north of us, a little place called Latchford. Not a big place. 400 people live there. And you drive through there to get to the assembly in New Liskert, or maybe some days to get up to camp. We drive through Latchford all the time. And um, unlike your lovely highway system here, in northern Ontario, often there's sort of one way to go where you're going. And that's it, man. And if you're going north, you're probably going through Latchford at some point. There's a river there just at the south edge of Latchford. It's called the Montreal River. It's a big, long, winding river. It runs through a number of communities, but it cuts right across the highway at the south edge of Latchford. It's a little bit of a drop, you know, uh, and probably 100, 150 feet of, of river, and it moves pretty quickly at that point. Well, that's a problem for highways. I don't, you know, sudden drops, I know we have our share of pedal, potholes, I understand, but sudden drops of, say, 30 feet or more, you tend to notice. 
So they built a bridge in Latchford, the Aubrey Cousins Memorial Bridge. He was a soldier back in World War I, and they built a bridge to commemorate him. And, you know, they carefully planned and they designed that bridge. They thought it through pretty well. And they said, we'll join the southern shore of the Montreal River to the northern shore, and that'll be a bridge, and that'll be part of the highway, and traffic will be able to move, and that's great. And then we had a steady week, and if nothing else will keep you from moving north, this will. We had a steady week where the high did not get above minus 30. Ugh. That was back in 2003. That was a miserable winter. And a truck driver drove across that bridge one January day, and as he did, he heard a loud bang because a number of rivets had given way, and the bridge dropped. There's no bridge in Latchford. And there's no real good way around. Going around meant a three-hour additional drive. What do you do? For two weeks, I mean, eventually they put up a temporary bridge. You could walk across it and some light traffic could get across it. But even that took a couple of weeks. And so for a couple of weeks, if you were north of Latchford, that's where you were staying. And if you were south of Latchford, that's where you're staying. The bridge was gone. What's a priest? You know what a priest is, right? And by the way, if you're a Christian here this morning, you're a priest. Isn't that what you're called in Revelation? That the Lord Jesus, one of the things he did is he made us to be a kingdom of priests. And a priest has two roles, really. <clears throat> in his first role, he ministers the needs and the requests and the solicitations of men to God. He connects earth to heaven, if you will. That's his job. And in his second role, he ministers perhaps the blessings and the words and what heaven would send earthward, he ministers that the other way. He's a two-way operation as a priest. He's like a bridge. And maybe you think as you look up here this morning, wow, that's a really smart illustration, but it didn't begin with me, actually. You ever heard this Latin term? If you've got a Catholic background, you have. Pontifex Maximus. It's Latin. You know what it means? A supreme bridge builder. A pontiff is from the Latin word for bridge. That's the idea. A priest is a bridge. He's crossing a chasm that would otherwise be uncrossable. And just as in Latchford, and uh, there's no resentment from me as a northerner when I say this, look, we send down here all our raw materials. We hardly produce anything up there. And we send them down to you, in part over that bridge, and you guys make all the good stuff, and you send it back to us, sometimes over that bridge. That's the way the transaction works. And when the bridge went out, the transaction stopped working, and that was bad for both of us. What can we say about priests? You know, that little moment where the truck went across the bridge and the bridge collapsed. You know, priests, the ones that we're most familiar with, they collapse all the time. And even if you consider yourself a priest here this morning, well, I don't want to discourage you, but collapse is coming. Any number of ways. You can think about some of the people, men and women, who you've admired and maybe who even led you to faith or have encouraged you in the faith and there's been a collapse 
some sin emerges, and uh, you can't regard them in the way you once did. And they're not the blessing to you they once were. You see, they have their own sin to deal with, not just yours. And that's a problem for a priest. There's another problem. Sometimes priests pass away. And they just ain't there anymore for your needs. They can't do the job because they've died. That's happened to every priest but one. Priests fail just like bridges fail. Well, what did they do in Latchford? You know, eventually they got some clever engineers and they rebuilt the bridge. They put back the bridge that had fallen, the bridge that had broken. They designed it carefully. They thought, you know, sometimes there might be a full week where the temperature doesn't get above minus 30. I guess we ought to consider that. And so they made some better rivets. But I'll tell you this, I'm not an engineer and I didn't get much schooling and the schooling I did get was in history. So it's not much help with bridge building. I'll tell you this though, however clever the engineers were, however good the material was that they used to rebuild that bridge in Latchford and they did rebuild it and the new one works very well, thank you very much. But one day it's gonna collapse again. That's what bridges do. It takes a hundred years or it takes a thousand years, that bridge is going down that much, I promise you. Time and tide will take it down. Where's your faith? Where's your trust? Where's your hope? What human authority can you turn to that is going to be reliable and there for the long term? I want to think a little bit about a bridge this morning. I want to think about a letter. Can we turn, please, to the book of 2 Corinthians? Let's spend a little time there. The book of 2 Corinthians. There we are in chapter 7. Paul, um, Paul has seen a little bit about what's going on at Corinth. It's not been good, by the way. Uh, you think your meeting has problems. Well, actually, maybe you don't. It looks pretty good to me from here, but I don't know much. But even if you do have problems, I bet you don't have problems like Corinth had problems. They're kind of the, the epitome of a troubled meeting. And so you get this letter, 1 Corinthians. I think that's the letter Paul's going to be referring to here in 2 Corinthians. You get this letter that Paul writes, and he tells us here, doesn't he, uh, that he was discouraged in writing that letter. He says in verse 8, Though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I think he's referring to 1 Corinthians, he says, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians with a trembling hand. I think there were people in Corinth that he loved, and I think that comes out in this second letter. And I think he wanted the best for Corinth, and he was seeing that they were not getting the best. Things were not great. And he sits down to write this letter, and man, it's a hard letter. You think of the words of Scripture. Do you have some good friends, by the way, who speak the truth to you? Scripture says this, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Someone who knows you well enough, but loves you well enough to tell you the truth about when you've gone off the rails. And Paul writes 1 Corinthians and he thinks, this is probably the end of our relationship. I don't know how they're going to receive this. This could go very badly. 
And when you care enough and when you love enough to speak to someone and say, listen, I have to tell you some hard truth, you're doing it potentially at the expense of the relationship. And maybe you've had the experience of cutting someone off who spoke to you too plainly. Maybe you've had the experience of being cut off because you spoke too plainly. And Paul says, I regretted writing that letter, right? I'm afraid, he says, when I wrote that letter. Then he says, I don't regret it anymore. Because I see how you've received it. I see what's happened. So he writes this letter. He says in verse 8, I caused you sorrow by my letter. I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice, verse 9, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. Now I want you to take special note of verse 10, please, if you're following along. The sorrow that is according to the will of God produces, please notice this phrase, I think it's vital, repentance without regret. Real godly sorrow. Here's the thing that Paul will go on to say. Sin always, always, always produces sorrow. For a Christian, for someone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, sinning produces sorrow. For an unbeliever who wants nothing to do with Christ and is reveling in his sin, ultimately it produces what? Sorrow. That's all sin can produce. And this world is full of the sorrow that sin produces. And there are two potential types of sorrow. There is for the Christian a godly sorrow, and godly sorrow is intended to produce exactly what we've just talked about. Repentance, that's real change, without regret. And you say to the Lord, I know that's what I did, I know it was wrong, I do not want, and I'm going to commit myself as much as possible to never doing that again. I'm really trying, and I want to change. Lord, help me to change. What I'm not going to do is be consumed by the past, and I'm not going to dwell on that which you have forgiven. I will move forward changed, but not filled with regret. My Christian walk will not be dominated by regret. That's what happened in Corinth. They changed, and they didn't regard their past as something they had to dwell on. Repentance without regret. There is a worldly sorrow, isn't there? That's what the verse will go on to say. Godly sorrow leads to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces what? Death. The world is made sad and sorrowful by sin. It doesn't lead to anything good. It leads to the grave. The godly sorrow produces salvation and repentance. The worldly sorrow produces only death. Okay, back with me. The first Samuel, please. Back to the Old Testament. Back to the book of 1 Samuel. First Samuel and, or pardon me, Second Samuel, chapter 12, verse 24. I can't read my phone. Second Samuel, chapter 12. Let me tell you a little story about a fellow named David, someone I think we all consider admirable. David was a man after God's own heart. David, who wrote so many Psalms. David, who really made the kingdom of Israel what it was at its ascendancy under Solomon. 
David, who was God's king, God's chosen king, David, who took another man's wife and then killed her husband and sought to cover it up. That's David. There's sin even in the greatest of lives. And um, after a period of time, you remember the situation. We've talked about the power of stories a little bit over the last couple of days. David sins, and he really finds that it severed his fellowship with his God. doesn't seem that he spent much time in prayer, if any, and the heavens to him were closed. And there he was with Bathsheba, having successfully gotten away with things, I suppose. He writes a psalm, and he talks about how hard that time was and how difficult that was and how distant he felt from God. But it's certainly a period of some months. And Nathan the prophet comes to him, and you notice the way that Nathan comes. Nathan tells him a story. And it's a story that, in a sense, is truer than the truth. The point of the story is so sharp, and the punchline after David is furious at the story he's told. It's a story of such terrible injustice. And David is furious. And Nathan can sort of point the finger. You imagine it happening. David, you're the man. You're who this story is about. And it pierces David. And he repents, and he approaches God. And the message comes to him, listen, David, <laughs> repentance, forgiveness, those are both possible, but there is consequence for your sin. And the consequence is this son who was conceived is going to die. What a sorrow for a father. David begs and David mourns, but the justice of God is unavoidable, and the son dies. Bathsheba, as we read here, she's comforted by David, and uh, another son is conceived. And that son is born. And David, well, he rejoices. People are a little confused, you know. He stopped mourning, and now he's rejoicing. The son is, is, is going to live. And David names the son Solomon. We know what Solomon means means peace. Right? That's what the word means. It's shalom in the original, if you will. But shalom is a very interesting word. It's rendered any number of different ways in Scripture. It's, it's certainly peace. It's also rendered as wholeness or completeness. It's from a root word that means recompense or paid back. And it's the idea, it's the kind of peace you might have. You know, the credit card bill comes, and the phone calls start coming, hey, you owe us, you owe us money. <laughs> and so you write the check, and you send it in, or you e-transfer, or whatever it is you cool kids do. <laughs> you pay off the balance. And the next month, the statement comes, and there's a lovely zero at the bottom. No phone call will be forthcoming. There's no pressure. It's all relieved because they've been paid back. You have peace with them. That's maybe a silly illustration, but it seems to reflect what David was really thinking. You see, there was a son who died, and so he knew he was under God's judgment because the son died. That's a pretty clear indication. God had told him that would be the judgment, and the judgment came true. And now there's another son, and if he's still under God's judgment, maybe that son's going to die too, but the son doesn't die. The son lives. And so a good name for that, for David, was Solomon. 
peace recompense. The price has been paid. My balance with God is at zero. There's a little sadness in that name, don't you think? That for the rest of his life, David and Bathsheba and the kingdom would know King Solomon as paid back, recompense. In the, the, the living embodiment of the son who lived, there's a recollection of the sadness of the son who died. It would always call to mind the judgment of God and how hard things had been and the cost of David's sin. That was always part of Solomon's name. Well, we get this, to me, fun little verse. Would you please slow down when you read Scripture and notice the beauty of just one little verse? What happens? Nathan the prophet shows up, and he says, listen, I'm paraphrasing horribly. This must be the NIV. <laughs> he says, listen, you can call him Solomon if you want. In fact, the rest of Scripture will refer to him as Solomon all the way through. So, David, I'm not going to fight with you about it. But, David, I do want you to have a message. God says his name's not Solomon, it's Jedediah. So I can tell you on the authority of no less a prophet than Nathan that there will be no King Solomon that you'll meet in heaven one day. I think there will be a King Jedediah. It's a very interesting name. You know, you look up Jedediah. Do you know what Jedediah means? It only appears here. He's a one-verse wonder. Jedediah means loved of God. And it seems to me God is saying this. If you want to focus on the sorrow of yesterday, okay. I kind of wish you wouldn't. Because my focus, the heavenly focus, is on what's going to be accomplished through the Son who lived. And my focus is not on judgment. My focus is on blessing. And I wish you knew me that way, David. I wish you didn't know me as a God of judgment and the terrible cost of sin. I wish you really knew me and focused on the son who lived and understood that this is a message, David, that I love you and I'm going to bless you. And from this day forward, it's all good. So, here we go. Let's talk about what we all came to think about this morning. The cross. You ever have cross words with someone? It means you disagree. You ever come to cross purposes? It means you're not going the same way as someone else. Chesterton points out that this symbol, the cross, is actually a symbol of conflict. <laughs> one arm going this way, one arm going this way. And if you want to get slightly philosophical, you can think about that lateral portion of the cross, earthbound, pointing east and west, men's ideas. And then you can think about the vertical portion, planted firmly in the earth, firmly enough to hold up the Son of God as he dies, but pointing endlessly heavenward, heaven's ideas. The scripture talks about the cross as the culmination, the crisis point of the ages. You can think of it this way, it's like, it's like a hinge point in history. Everything before, for thousands of years, right from Genesis and the moments in the garden where a lamb, I believe, died to cover Adam and Eve, right the way through to Calvary, everything pointing to the one who would come 
and would not be a covering for sin, but would actually take it away. Everything pointing to Calvary. And everything since, on down to this morning, taking its significance from that moment, more than 2,000 years ago, everything pointing back. Isn't that what we did this morning together as a group? We took bread and wine and we said, I remember a day more than 2,000 years ago that changed everything and is the single greatest moment in human history. Ask the historians. They're all crazy, but ask them, what's the greatest moment in human history? Oh, it's the invention of fire. It's Darwin's brilliant idea. It's the semiconductor and Steve Jobs. I don't know. They'll come up with a thousand crazy ideas, and not a one of them will say it was a moment on Calvary 2,000 years ago when the Son of God, God incarnate, came and gave his life to deal with the problem of sin. You and I know it is the moment of moments. It's the singular moment in human history, and it's a moment of unbelievable conflict. You might have heard the term archetype. That's a big fancy word. It means you can't come up with a deeper idea. Archetype is as far as it goes. And if you can imagine, and you can't, someone more innocent than the Lord Jesus Christ, who would die, is the archetype of innocence and righteousness and holiness. Can you imagine, can you design a greater injustice than that which he suffered? They lied about him to get him to trial, didn't they? And they chased him and hectored him. His whole public ministry was a ministry of conflict, and it meets its final resolution, really, at the cross. And there, injustice, the earth's idea of justice, and boy, look around you today, don't you get frustrated by this world's lack of justice? I probably like politics a little too much, and I'm mostly amused by American politics, and I probably spend too much time thinking about it, and occasionally I make the terrible mistake of, you know, I'll be reading something and I'll snort. I do that. I snort to express dismay or disgust or amusement or, I don't know, as I get older, I just snort and I don't even know why. Uh, my wife will say, what is it? And I'll make the mistake of telling her. She gets so upset at injustice. I just snort. It's kind of amusing to me. I'm so cynical. I've, I've become blasé about it. I kind of expect it. And my wife, bless her heart, still has a little bit of innocence that I haven't managed to wear out of her, and she's still horrified at what this world is doing and has done. And she hopes for better and she longs for better, and when I tell her, it breaks her heart. There at the cross, what an unjust world. The pinnacle, the archetype of injustice is there. You know what else is there? That's an earthly idea, by the way, the earthly idea of justice, and it's a corrupt, horrible sort of justice, and it doesn't satisfy any of us, and the cross is its worst example. It's also the best example of heaven's justice. It's heaven's perfect justice, heaven's complete justice, the issue of sin forever and totally dealt with, right there at the cross, and earthly injustice and heavenly justice meet, and guess what? Let me spoil the ending for you. Heavenly justice wins. It's the pinnacle of human hatred. You know, the Lord Jesus had to die to pay for our sins. 
I think scripture is very clear about that, and that he would die on a cross, that was bound to happen. That was the plan of God. There was a lot that was not necessary in that moment. Nothing about being spat on saves us from sin. Nothing about having his beard plucked saves us from sin. Nothing about a crown of thorns jammed down on his head saves us from sin. Nothing about the jeering he endured and the mocking he endured and the shame they tried to heap on him that he looked completely past. None of that was necessary. Oh, but it was a token of this world's hatred for that which is truly beautiful and righteous. This world hates righteousness. It hates holiness. It loves the darkness rather than the light. And it's there that the hatred of man is fully expressed. That's the pinnacle. And it's there that the love of God is fully expressed. Most clearly. <laughs> if you could have an audience with God and you had the temerity to ask him a question and maybe some of that grit that's been in the center of your life has been bothering you, you say to him, God, how do I know you say you love me? How do I know you love me? Well, Scripture says this, God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. God would, in answer, point to the cross and point to his son dying. Hey, that didn't have to happen but for the fact that I long to redeem you and long to have fellowship with you. And there at the cross, we find the hatred of man meeting the love of God. And guess what? Spoil the ending. God's love wins. It's the crisis point of crisis points. It's the meeting point of everything. Our time is going, so we run along. All right. We talked about a pearl. The Lord Jesus dying on that cross. Well, that's a bit of grit, isn't it? That speaks too little of it. That's something we didn't expect, that we didn't plan for, but it was a plan in the heart of God and day by day, since that horrible event, God has been wrapping that grit, the crucifixion, with a thin, maybe seemingly insubstantial layer of beauty. But you know, he's had 2,000 years to build it up. And year by year, generation by generation, he's adding to something beautiful he's building called the church. And he's adding those who love his son. And... <laughs> We can look back at the ugliness of the cross, but now we see it surrounded by the beauty of 2,000 years of salvation stories and redemption stories and stories of those who have found a home in heaven, some of whom are already there, and one day we'll go and rejoin them. And there is at the center of history this horrible moment where there's a cross and the Son of God died in a most brutal way, but somehow to us this morning, it's become the most beautiful center point of history there could be. It's at the cross that ugliness and beauty meet. And guess what? Beauty wins. I love the cross of Christ for what it means. That God loved me enough to come and to die and send his son to die for my sin. And so we can think of the pearl and we can think of Christ made beautiful. His crucifixion made beautiful. I think of these words, it is finished. You know, I said, you build a bridge and the bridge collapses and we can talk about someone who has taken the title. What a title to take for yourself. Pontifex Maximus, the best bridge builder ever. And maybe when you hear that title, you think, what a horrible thing. You've taken a title that rightly belongs to Christ. And I'll say, 
actually, no, I don't want to call Christ the Pontifex Maximus. I don't want to refer to him as a bridge builder because you know what? A bridge is just a covering. A bridge is just something that goes over the water. The problem in Latford isn't the bridge. The problem is the Montreal River. And here's what Christ did at the cross. He didn't build a better bridge. He didn't engineer a better design, some design that would stand the test of time. He got rid of the river. No bridge needed. When he died and the very hand of heaven tore the temple curtain from top to bottom, he said, the way is now open. And said to you and I, come boldly. Imagine coming boldly into the presence of God. Christ did that. He's not a bridge builder. He's removed the problem that required bridges. He's brought us into fellowship with the Father. He's given us peace with God. Don't give him the title Pontifex Maximus. Leave that for a failed human authority with a false name. We don't need another bridge. We need a savior. And he's come. And the cross of Calvary tells us that. He's a pearl. He's a bridge. I said there's a son who died and a son who lives, and maybe it was a little obvious, but let me make it plain for those of us who are a little slow, including the speaker this morning. You know, God has a son who died and a son who lives. He's got a son. We gathered this morning. You know, I've, I've been in meetings, breaking your bread, and there's nothing wrong with this. Meetings that are dominated by sorrow. Oh, what our sin costs. The image of the Savior on the cross and the suffering he endured. How does that not touch your heart? How does that not move you to tears? It's right that it should. And if you want to look back on the Lord Jesus dying on the cross and dwell on that, well, that's okay. But please embrace a repentance without regret. Without regret. And I hope if you'll know the Lord Jesus is the one who died on the cross, you will then move your focus, as I think he encouraged us to do. He said, remember me in this way until I come. There's a hint of his return in the recollection of his death. His death is always meant to point us to his resurrection and his return, something we'll talk about this evening. He said, do this until I come. He's the real Jedediah. And God's message to you this morning is that the cost of your sin is tremendous. And it did cost the death of his son. And that does matter. And maybe you should weep a few tears about it. But please, return your focus in due time to what this son of God will do yet. I love the title Hebrews gives him. And I know it can be translated different ways. <laughs> I like the way it's translated in one translation. Hebrews calls him the high priest of the good things to come. I know in the context of the writing, it really should be understood as the high priest of the good things that were yet to come at that time, as if they'd all been delivered. But listen, he's still the high priest of the good things to come. There's better than this waiting for you, brother and sister. I hope you're enjoying this life. I hope you're enjoying your family. I hope you're enjoying your career or even better, your retirement. I hope things are good for you. But for all of you, even those who are struggling and going through a tough time, those who are enduring a bit of grit and wondering what to do with it, I can promise you this. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, it's going to get so much better. Scripture tells us that one day we'll see him and he'll come 
And I love this phrase, he's coming to be marveled at among all who have believed. However well you think of him today, it's not well enough. You will think better of him when you see him. And one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And I understand the underlying language really means this. It will be a voluntary bowing and a voluntary confession that everyone, when they see the Lord Jesus, will say, it is unquestionable he should rule. It is unquestionable that he should have the glory. It is unquestionable that he should be honored. He's coming to be marveled at among all who believe. And I long for that day when we'll see him. The great pearl, the great bridge, the son who lived. That's the cross. Tonight, if time permits, we're going to talk about a little bit an empty tomb and an ascension and some of the words the Lord left us with that I trust will be an encouragement to your heart. Wonderful to be with you this morning. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for that great gift, that gift of all gifts, that gift who is all other gifts in one, as the hymn writer has said. Thank you for the finished work of the Lord Jesus. Thank you that we can experience now repentance, real change in our lives, repentance, but a beautiful sort of repentance that comes without regret. That your focus now, for those of us who are forgiven and know Christ as Savior, your focus now is really on the blessing that yet lies ahead. We know you, Father, to be a God who blesses. And we've thought this morning, we've mentioned briefly those who so recently have suffered such devastating loss. And we pray, Father, that by your grace, you would preserve them from even a moment of bitterness, that you would answer surely the doubts that must have arisen, the questions they've asked, that even in the face of these great tragedies, that you would, by your grace, surround those tragedies day by day with a layer of unbelievably resilient beauty. And that ultimately each of us would point back to that thing which is at the very heart of the human story, that crisis of the ages, that moment when your son went to the cross and died to deal with sin. What a beautiful, appalling moment that was. How do we understand it, Father? Help us to enjoy this time and this day reveling in the salvation your son has brought. Thank you for each one who's been here this morning in person and by virtue of technology and those who perhaps will watch later. Father, bless us, encourage us with thoughts of your son. Impart us now for safety this afternoon with a blessing in our Savior's great name.